So are we really doing this? Yep. Too late to turn back now. The music already started. Welcome, everyone, to the Gov Navigators podcast, a government-focused podcast that won't make you seasick. We're the Gov Navigators. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. We hope to enlighten and enliven your week with news and insightful, entertaining guests, all on the topic of government management. Enjoy today's episode of Gov Navigators, brought to you by the creative geniuses behind the award-winning podcast, Fethead. Welcome, everyone. It's Public Sector Recognition Week. We here at Gov Navigators are all about celebrating the enormous contributions of public servants at every level of government. So if you know one well enough and ask for consent, give a hug to a public servant today and every day this week. Welcome back to another episode of the Gov Navigators podcast. I'm Adam Hughes. I'm Robert Che. Robert, I've got some bad news. Well, that's really what you want to lead with? Maybe some tough news. Uh, we heard from a listener, dedicated listener to the Gov Navigators podcast, thrilling feedback on the content, on what we're doing. Thought maybe our segments were a little low energy, though. So I could see myself being accused of low energy. You, my friend, I think that's an unfair claim. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. But, yeah. you know, we love hearing from listeners. No, that was not a compliment. That was <laughs> not a compliment. I just want to be clear. Now, I think you made a joke like in the first episode about sharing an office with me. Right. And, uh, and that experience. So you're producing. Can you just like speed up? Can, maybe we could just increase the speed or something. I can't. Can... We can adjust volumes, too, if, it's, yeah, if that's the issue. Um, well, well, I'll pay attention to that now. I'll be higher energy. Be excited. I mean, okay. who, excited. who who is not excited about a government management podcast? Yeah. Yeah. True that. So so what in your new excited level, what have you been paying attention to this week? I've been following the Supreme Court. How much more exciting can you be? Actually, it is kind of wild that the Supreme Court is delving into the back office of federal government operations. And this week, a couple of decisions, one of which puts um, a major Supreme Court doctrine at risk. The Supreme Court has agreed to take a case governing, of all things, the National Marine Fisheries Service's requirement for industry-paid monitors on fishing boats as a way to review their general deference to federal regulatory agencies interpreting provisions of statute that may be vague. The import of this is that it could upend a lot of past decisions, certainly future ones, that as so many vague statutes have been interpreted by regulatory agencies and they've been left to their own devices, that may come to an end. They may um, not be able to make those interpretations and have to stick to the strict reading of a statute. Well, and that uh, that deference to the regulatory agencies will the, the regs themselves may change in the way that they're implemented, but the, the culture and the way that the, those regulatory agencies operate will be drastically different if they know that anytime their decisions about an interpretation of a congressional law and regulation is going to be reinterpreted through the courts, it, it's going to have a, a stifling effect on the way that regulatory agencies work. The worst impact is it will empower the no men and women of government the offices of general counsel. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Gosh, our listeners are getting gold here. So uh, if that was not 
in the weeds enough for you. The Supreme Court also, actually not Supreme Court, U.S. Court of Federal Claims weighed in on a case involving contract pricing. They found that GSA improperly excluded price as a criterion on the $15 billion Polaris contract. You know, generally they want pricing to come into play at the task order level, but the Court of Federal Claims has said, no, 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 that's inappropriate. And so that will likewise have a domino effect. Other contracts, including Oasis Plus, mm-hmm. yep. will have to include pricing in the in evaluation at the master contract level. And that that's a real setback for GSA's whole policy to focus on making sure that agencies have a broad set of vendors to choose from, and they can make those trade-offs on the task order level. Totally true. And there's that is it's sort of you see the pendulum swinging in a different direction because a lot of the federal contracting community is not happy with LPTA contracts, lowest price technically acceptable. They want value to be, even if the price is higher, if you're getting a better value. And I think the government should want that too. Uh, but this also seems to be sort of in the in the opposite side of that, right? Where they didn't look at price at all. Um, and maybe it's not the appropriate time in the process to look at it. But the fact that the courts are weighing in on it is a major development for sure. What are you watching? Well, you, you mentioned we're, we've been talking about GSA. I, I've been impressed with the gravitas that the inspector general office at GSA has been bringing to their reports. They released a new report on GSA's transactional data reporting pilot. So this is when uh, contractors uh, need to report pricing data to the government uh, about products and services that have been sold. GSA has portrayed this pilot as a success. The IG did an investigation, and I'm quoting here, the data collected through the pilot program has never been used to analyze or negotiate contract level pricing. And GSA has amassed a collection of data that is almost entirely inaccurate, unreliable, and unusable. Hmm. That is... A I'm very not, strongly worded comment in a G, IG report. I'm not sure gravitas is the right word, but somebody at GSA OIG has been eating their Wheaties. That, yeah, because the correct. This is not this is not the tone you generally expect from an IG report, but it does harken back to our USA spending days. I think some of those words might have been been used to describe the good work uh, we did uh, building it's possible. that website. It's possible. Thank goodness there was not an IG investigation. Well, a busy week. Let's move on to our great guest. Sounds great. And we're back. Robert, we've got a great couple of guests lined up today to uh, talk about a pretty weighty subject. We like to try to keep it light. And so that's the challenge has been thrown down to try to keep it light today. Uh, We're going to be talking about COVID and a new book that's called Lessons from the COVID War. We are delighted to have two members of the COVID crisis group who've been studying the government's response to the pandemic for several years and just released a book. Monique Mansura, who is the executive director for global health and biotechnology at MITRE, and Doug Cristatello, former executive director of the MIT Golub Center for Finance and Policy and a friend of FEDS, I should say. Welcome back, Doug. Monique, welcome to Gov Navigators. Great to be here. Thank you. That's Dr. Monique Mansour. <laughs> oh, Let's yeah. make Sorry. sure we're Thank giving you. credit where Thank credit you for is due. Thank you for the correction. 
That's right. I mean, we get only the best guests here at Gov Navigators. Doug, Monique, tell us how this whole effort got started. I'll start there. With a friendly correction on my title, the word you missed, Robert, is global health security. The word security is very important and very intentional and very central to the theme of the book, Lessons from the COVID War. We got started a couple of years ago in anticipation that certainly there would be something like a COVID commission similar to what we saw uh, in the 9-11 Commission after those attacks in 2001. Both enormous catastrophes. For me, it's not post. It's an ongoing sort of Mm. trauma that is not over. And the work that needs to be done is exactly what the catalyst was for this group coming together under Philip Zellicoe. 34 of us, each of us bringing sort of years and years of active leadership roles in the public sector, the private sector, in addressing pandemic preparedness and preparedness from, for biological threats. So last year we came together and said, we've done all this work, the commission's not happening. Could it be of use to the community? And when I say the community, this really book was really designed to be accessible to the general public, to our families, to our communities, to help us all make sense of what happened. And most importantly, to understand what the role of each and all of us is really critically is that we must do better next time because there will be a next time. Doug, what's the top line takeaways from the book and and the work that you all did? Well, we weren't ready. We weren't ready for the pandemic. These are lessons learned the hard way. And we hope that our recounting of the lead up to the pandemic and then living through COVID-19 over the past three years will help enable the country to move forward and be ready for the next one. So that's the primary lesson, at least from uh, my observation point. Your point, Monique, about this not being post, that we're in the middle of this, this was uh, something that really impacted the nation. I often think about living in the D.C. metro area as being under constant crisis. I was in the Hart Building. Uh, when the anthrax was released, yeah. I was in I was in the Capitol building when during 9/11, I was in the White House working on Katrina, watching the pandemic, watching this banking crisis. What observations can you make about the opportunities the government has to be more risk aware, to 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 be more agile and adept at responding to these crises? One of the great challenges was the vast array of threats that we are uh, that we need to be attentive to, that we arguably need to be prepared for, and to build a constituency of folks so that it's their expectation that it's first and foremost a responsibility of government to protect the population from these high consequences. What, again, I would strongly advocate are national security threats. Public health is a component of this, But if we don't hold these sorts of missions against the national security standard and the expectations of how we plan for, prepare for, respond to, and recover from these high consequence events and our willingness to make investments that leaders are held accountable for and that will show a return on those investments. How how much of the work you all did as a group, how much of that focused on communication? One of my observations from it was the struggles government had in particular 
with communicating about a dense topic where they don't have all the answers. And you see that across many parts of government too. Most recently with some of the train derailments in the upper Midwest. Talk a little bit about the role of communication and the government's role as official spokesperson in types of national crises like these. Did that come up a lot? And if so, how did you wrestle with that? We could have written an entire book on that. You know, I think it's a thread throughout the book, not just about, you know, the government being proactive and effective and early communications. I mean, that's so critical. Those early weeks and months of the pandemic were dictating the future trajectory of the disease in this country. So, you know, I I think it's woven throughout the book. We could have spent chapters on misinformation, sort of the flip side of effective communications. Communication in the fog of war. There was no easy way to communicate or no obvious decisions to be made. And I think that discipline that is risk communications and understanding how to effectively communicate and who should be communicating. It's not necessarily uh, top-down messaging. It, it is getting the right messenger, messengers that will resonate within the communities to be able to drive the types of action that were critical to protecting lives and protecting livelihoods. I will say in my 20 years leading up to this of preparedness, we did not anticipate that if we developed life-saving medical countermeasures, that they would not be taken up in the sorts of numbers the way that we saw evolve. The other thing I'll say about mis and disinformation, this wasn't just about public health leaders not being effective in their communications. This was about intentional, large-scale nation-state information warfare. And that's relatively new. Again, we've seen it in other sectors of our society. You're fighting more than the virus, right? You bet. That is a parallel war that we're playing out on getting effective life-saving information out to everyone. Doug, talk a little bit about the budgeting side of this and how government structurally approaches it and maybe some changes that you all found or recommended that could make things better. So I I have to channel President Biden. One of his sayings is, is, I think think he says, show me your budget and I'll tell you your priorities, right? And, And that is so true here. The amount of taxpayer dollars that were used as a fiscal response here is absolutely unprecedented. $5 trillion, well in excess of $5 trillion. You know, that's more than the government spent on all of its activities in the fiscal year immediately preceding the pandemic. This is just an amazingly huge amount of money that was spent once the pandemic struck us. So what do we need to be thinking about from a budgetary perspective? Well, you know, it comes back to being strategic here and to have flexible, integrated and coordinated budget going forward. And the notion of integration is so important because it's not just across federal agencies and down to state and local entities, but it's engaging the private sector. That's really, really important. That's where the expertise lies. We don't look for a particular government agency to build our missile systems, right? We engage the the private sector. We also need to engage Wall Street and we need to engage internationally. And all of those all of those engagements hit on the need for this uh, integrated budgetary approach. Could not agree more with you. Sadly, we are far, far from that uh, structurally and I would say culturally within the federal budgeting process. Would it liken it more to an old rubber band that if you 
pull it too far in any direction, it's going to snap and right. fall apart even more than it already is. Yeah. Monique, thoughts on that? You know, I can speak also from my experience in industry. It is really hard when I was in industry to look at federal budgets, annual appropriations, most of this budget dominated by supplemental just-in-time response reactive budgets, and to be able to justify the allocation of resources of the most talented people in the company, of the manufacturing line and the facility, and say, wow, is this great? Here's a great opportunity to contribute to this national security mission, to work with the U.S. government. But again, I, I, I didn't get a pass because I was working with the U.S. government. I had to make the case and fight to be in the portfolio and demonstrate sort of ROI. And, and the information that I could extract out of federal budgets made my job almost Sisyphean. Any final hopeful note to leave us with? Absolutely. We saw what our country is capable of, both at the individual level. We saw heroics. This book is filled with that, most of it by improv, not by necessarily design. And what we hope to do through the book is to really harness that because we have seen what is possible, what we're capable of. It's imperative we learn from the places where we fell short. But this book, it was written with hope. It was written to honor our fellow Americans that were lost. It is a hopeful book, and it is designed to be accessible so that everyone can take something from it. Everyone has a role in, in this war and future wars. Just to channel one more president, I got to call out JFK. All these Democrats. <laughs> The, the mission to the, it's put a man on the moon, right? He talked about we're doing it not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And it's a challenge that we're willing to accept and one that we're unwilling to postpone. And I think that applies very neatly here. The book is called Lessons from the COVID War, report by the COVID Crisis Group. Thank you both for joining us. All proceeds from the book are going to the American Red Cross. It's an accessible read. Get out there and get it. It's on Amazon. You can buy it today. Thank you both Thank for you both. joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Robert. Well, that was sobering. Indeed. Speaking of sobering, not a ton of progress uh, you're on sober? the <laughs> Not well. I, I think it might be better if I wasn't, given the topic that I'm going to mention. Not a lot of progress on debt ceiling negotiations. No, we're not um, talking about debt ceiling. It's, we, we I think, want, I think this, you're right. This is this is a low-stress podcast. So First rule of debt ceiling. Don't talk about debt ceiling. Is that, that a deal? Agreed. Agreed. So yeah. what uh, what are you excited about this coming week? Well, where where are we? We're on another Gov Navigator's boondoggle. Another Chesa- junket. Another junket. We're, we're out on the Chesapeake with all of our IT friends at the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference. It's a great location, a great conference. I don't know if there's if it's their second biggest. Their their big one annual one is in the fall, but this is their their big spring event, and it's they got some great speakers and some great sessions. Um, and we rode together. It was yeah. It was how would you rate my rendition of ninety nine bottles of beer on the wall? A uh, long, long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to think we, of a, a a new ditty for the next ride. Yes. The, I didn't know that it was going to be a full performance on the drive. I would have driven separately, but honestly. Uh, what are you What are you looking forward to? So there's a House oversight hearing May 10th entitled Risky Business, Costly Inaction on Federal Legacy IT. 
I'm not necessarily sure we're going to hear new things at this hearing. I feel like Congress could have had this hearing every year for the last 15 years. Comer could sweep in in his tidy whities a la Risky Business. That So people would watch that, right? If right. You're, you're exactly right. You're exactly other, right. Unfortunately, um, many, many a member has left the Congress for uh, similar foibles. Agreed. Agreed. Kevin Walsh, uh, Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at GAO, is testifying. And uh, Suzette Kent, former federal CIO, will also be testifying. But it looks like they're setting them up for some criticism, maybe. Risky business, well, costly in action. Agreed. And no one from the administration testifying, which is hmm. puzzling to me. All right. Look forward to next time. listening to this episode of the Gov Navigators podcast brought to you by Gov Navigators. We sure hope you enjoyed it and learned something in the process and didn't get seasick. Right, of course. If you want to know more about us and what we're up to, please visit govnavigators.com. Ahoy. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs>